Why do I not like the spotlight? Yeah. I don't like the spotlight, I think, because I'm really serious about the importance of company culture. And company culture is all about the people. And so I really genuinely believe that without the right team of people, nothing good is going to happen. So I tend to not like the spotlight to be on me because I can't do everything by myself and I can't do, you know, much of anything that the team here does. So I would prefer for the focus to be on the team. It makes sense that if everyone is competing for any goal other than the team's outcome, that's where there can be friction. Because if one person is competing for the spotlight or even just playing to some degree like a political game, that's where that creates that internal friction. I'm I'm guessing you've experienced that in the past. I have for sure. I've worked for several different companies. And what I found in some of the larger companies that I worked for, there was a lot more politics and there was a lot more positioning for individual people's gain and a lot less focus on the company's success. So that is not an environment that I really enjoy, which is why I think Intervala's culture is so fun for me. It's a group of people that are good people that are focused on doing the right things for the company, for the customer, and it's really a lot of fun. And we go into a lot of different offices to do this show, and I actually am fairly confident this is the first time that we've ever walked in and clearly see the exact components of the culture, or even just a culture board on the wall. I'm staring at it right now. People can check out YouTube at some other point to see it. But is that something you knew from like the jump with Interval that you wanted that and needed that to be a part of the equation? Yes, for sure. I mean, I think throughout my career, my history, I've just learned that without the good culture of the company, again, it's, you're not going to be successful. So early on when we created Intervala, we launched into several activities to create the culture from the get-go. That involved setting what were our values going to be, what was really our mission, our vision. And our vision is to really be the recognized standard in customer excellence. So we knew from the beginning that in our business, it's all about the customer. I mean, we are we're a contract manufacturing company. So what that means is that the customer, our customers are the most important thing because we're producing their products, we're supporting from an engineering standpoint what they need. You know, so our customers are typically companies that are out doing their own R&D and their marketing and they're focusing on their core competencies and they're depending on us completely to be their manufacturing partner. So if we let them down, we're done, basically. So the customer is of the utmost importance and so for us to succeed, every single person here has to believe that and they have to come in every day and they have to say, okay, the customer is the most important thing today. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the creation of Intervola? I know that there was a couple companies that were put together and assembled yes. to make it a reality, but just place us a little bit into how you identified the opportunity and what steps it took to bring those disparate pieces together. Okay. So let's see. The history of Intervala, really you can kind of trace the roots of this company as it is here today, clear back to the late 1800s. Wow. Okay, I know, long time ago. Clearly it's been in different forms, it's evolved, it's changed, it's had different names, different strategies over that time. It does have a long history. And then about three years ago, the company was, despite its many successes over the years, was really on the verge of failing and of potentially being shut down under different ownership, 
was really just probably a poor strategic fit with the current ownership group and what that company wanted to do. So there was a group of investors, including myself, that saw the potential, the tremendous potential for growth that this organization had. Myself and several other leaders of Intervala had worked for the company previously in different roles and under different ownership groups. So we knew what this group could do and what this organization could be. So we put the basically brought together the investors and purchased this location back from the prior ownership and launched Intervala. There were a lot of gaps in terms of what we needed to be in order to be successful. The investment in equipment and capital resources, things like that, really had dwindled over the last several years. So we had to kind of go back and do a lot of pretty basic things, assess the infrastructure, look at the equipment that we had, just, again, a lot of the basics. But we had the team that knew how to look at that and very quickly say, okay, this is what we need. This is what we're going to do. The other big thing is customers. As I said, the customers, that's it. You know, without them, we're nothing. And so we had a great base of customers. Many have been here for years and years and years, but some had kind of dwindled a bit, again, because of the different strategy with the previous ownership. So we spent the first year probably with a ton of FaceTime with the customers, just trying to make sure we were reengaged with them and that they understood that Intervala was here to support them and that we were going to continue to grow with them and support them and be the partner that they needed us to be. So we spent a lot of time on that as well. Three of the industries or three of the industries that you service are industrial, medical, and transportation. Were those all there in the past or has part of the growth been about understanding how you can serve different markets and then also getting that message out into the market itself? The markets are fairly consistent with what they've been in the past. So industrial, medical, transportation for probably the past decade and a half at least have been the primary markets here for this business. So it's not really a huge change there. I think those markets are extremely broad. So there's a, an almost endless opportunity to land new customers in those markets. They're all high-tech markets in terms of the way that we deal with it, the products that we supply into those markets. And so we've really just tried to continue to expand in those same markets. We are certainly looking at some other markets as well right now, but the ones we're in honestly have tremendous growth potential. Awesome. So when I first learned of you and of Intervala was at the Pittsburgh Tech Council's award ceremony where you were okay. named CEO of the year, once again, in the spotlight, despite your best intentions. And even in, in the speech that you gave there, it was very much about culture. And that's, I mean, to me, it is in one domain, something of a buzzword that a lot of people talk about it and rah-rah about mm -hmm. it. And then simultaneously, you can hear horror stories about where it goes wrong. Can you talk a little bit about how you move it past a talking point and a buzzword into something that's just in the DNA of the company? Yeah, I mean, it has to be something that you kind of walk the talk with. I mean, you can put it on the wall, but that's not going to that's not going to get you anywhere. We do a lot of things around culture. I would say it even starts with the hiring process. When we're hiring new employees, we're interviewing new people, the culture is part of what we're trying to assess before we bring them in the door. So we want the right people before we even as I said get them in the door. How do you do that? How do you do that assessment? By just 
asking behavioral-based questions in terms of how they would deal with certain situations, how they would address a customer issue. I mean, you can get a sense of how people are going to react based upon their answers to those questions. We have something that we introduced last year called the line of choice. And that's something that we introduced internally to all of our employees. And it's really about behaviors. So are you going to behave above the line or below the line? And there's a line of choice. And so we brought out examples of that. We've trained on that. For example, when you're faced with a problem or something goes wrong, are you going to blame somebody else? No, that's below the line. You don't do that. Or are you going to take ownership and accountability for that and be proactive and try to fix it? So we've kind of introduced, a, I don't know, a dozen or so behaviors that are above and below the line. And then you'll actually hear it in meetings or in different settings where someone will say, oh, I think that was below the line or wow, way to go. That was really above the line, the way you handled that. So that's just a little thing that we've done. That is precisely the question I was just about to ask, which is that has to be one of the most exciting elements of you can conceive of a new story to tell the team or a new framework that you can give them. But the mark of it actually landing is really when it bounces back and you hear Mm -hmm. those words come from someone else's mouth. And that's because of the hard work that you've put into getting the entire company in that same direction. Right. And it's also fun, though. You know, I mean, that's the way you make it. You make coming to work fun. You can talk about above the line and below the line. And everybody makes a mistake once in a while. And somebody will say something and clearly it wasn't above the line. But you can kind of call them out in a meeting even. Everyone kind of says, oh, yeah, you're right. Or kind of chuckles. And we we say, okay, we're going to fix that and move on. So it can make it fun. It doesn't have to be, it just doesn't have to be negative. You can make it fun too. It seems like focusing so heavily on culture has to also be tied to taking more of a long-term view with this company. Because just even in terms of like the incentives in place, if this was some sort of quick private equity flip where you're promising your investors in three years, we're going to resell it and we're going to slash all the expenses and whatever, spending so much time investing in culture doesn't make as much sense. So this has to be tied to some sort of long-term vision that you have for the company as well. It is for sure. Because we are definitely in it for the long haul. Our investors are very supportive of that. It's definitely not a short-term flip kind of a situation. And that's definitely evidenced by the amount of time and money we spend up front on our employees. I mean, we are growing. We're growing quickly. But even with the growth to support that, we're hiring folks in advance of when we really need them, for example, on the production floor. And the reason we do that is because we want to take the time to make sure that they're well-trained technically, but also culturally. So they're completely onboarded. And we do have a a formal onboarding program where folks go through a number of things to make sure they're ready to do their jobs, not just again, technically, but also from a culture standpoint. And it also seems like that would be tied into not letting mistakes go, but being able to offer forgiveness and readjustment when someone does something below the line, because you're taking more of a long-term view at every member of the team. This is someone who could be with us for 5, 10, 15 years and so on. No, that's exactly right. And I think The culture is very much, everybody makes a mistake. Let's not kill each other. Let's just fix it and move on. But having said that, though, this is a high-performance organization. And so if you continue to behave below the line, that's not going to fly. Certainly. In terms of the stakes, when we're talking about this technical manufacturing and the vital, critical role that you play for your clients, like if, if the products are not produced effectively, Every downstream thing is delayed to some degree. Talk about how you think about consistency and quality control in an environment where you have a company of over 200 people. 
Right. So in order for that to work, for you to have consistent, good product quality delivery, things like that, you have to have solid processes and it has to start basically at the core, at the very beginning of the process. Don't believe at all in inspecting quality in at the end. You can't do that. You have to make sure you build the product right the first time. You have to make sure that the components that we purchase are right when they come in the door. So I think we really do a lot to try to make sure that all of our upstream processes are solid and that when we do produce a product, it's good the first time. So can you explain in a little more detail what it means to control the upstream processes? Yeah, so that's, I don't know how to explain that, but basically it's everything from picking the right suppliers, right? So we we purchase a lot of custom components, metalwork, just very intricate types of things that go into the product. So as an example, we spend time qualifying suppliers. We make sure our suppliers kind of get it, even from a culture standpoint, because if they're not going to deliver on time, we're not going to deliver on time. So that's just kind of one example. Another is on the production floor, making sure that, for example, we have electronic work instructions on the floor so that when somebody goes to build a product, and we're not depending upon their remembering how to build it. We're not even depending on them looking at a paper drawing. It's all electronic and tightly controlled, so they can't possibly pull the wrong print to build the wrong thing. And are those directions provided by the end supplier, the client of yours, or is that something that you work with them to construct so that it makes sense within the framework that you've created at Interpala? We typically work with them. Each customer comes to us with a, a different, I guess, set of requirements, and their products sometimes are very well developed and sometimes they're not, they're early stage. So we work with them to develop everything that we need. Most of the time, we will have a spec, some prints, things like that. They'll have the product designed, but we will have to ter- determine the supply chain, figure out which suppliers make sense, and put all the infrastructure in place. So it's typically, from the time we engage with a new customer, it's typically at least a three-month process to be able to kind of get things going. It's just a lot of upfront work to do. And I'm sure that there is also, to some degree on their end, the desire to have not just someone to execute their will, but someone who can be that advisor in terms of best practices, given your domain expertise in a narrow part of the production process. I think that's true. And I mean, Intervala, one of our kind of taglines is intelligent solutions. And so we do differentiate ourselves, not just as a manufacturing company, but every customer is different. Every customer needs a different problem solved. So what we really do strive to provide is a custom manufacturing partnership solution. We do engineering for some customers. We do direct order fulfillment for some customers in addition to manufacturing. We will do aftermarket service and repair. So every single customer, we design something that's custom and we do pull from our many, many years of expertise to do that. And I'm sure in addition to screening for behavioral methods with the interview, there also has to be a degree of either habit or practice or reputation builds up that allows you to bring top-end talent into the company in the first place. What have you learned about bringing top engineering talent into this specific field of manufacturing? Honestly, it's difficult at times. Engineering talent is one of the most difficult ones for us to recruit. And I would say the main reason for that is that a lot of engineers want to go work for a company where they're doing product R&D and development, right? So we don't develop our own products. We're engineering some products with our customers. We work with the customers. But at the end of the day, our name doesn't appear on a product. It's the customer's 
name that appears on the product. So a lot of engineers don't necessarily like that. They want to develop, they want to tinker, they want to create. So we have to make sure we're finding the ones that really are motivated by the more the process and manufacturing and understanding that where they can create and develop is to develop the process to make this product better, make it faster, things like that. And we do a lot of recruiting, honestly, from internal referrals. People who work here tend to really like it here. And so they are our best advocates out there for recruiting. I'm sure that also plays a big part in retention as well, if it's coming through internal recommendations. For sure. Fascinating. I'm just so obsessed. So to give you more background on, on my end, Hannah and I started this company, Piper, within the last year. And we just brought our first person on. And all it feels like at least 50% of all the discussions we have is about culture but there is to some degree like when it's three people it's like we're playing in like a very small sandbox so to speak but there's kind of an inherent faith that is in its own way like a snowball that as it keeps rolling there's all sorts of benefits down the line that will come that we just can't necessarily anticipate can you put yourselves i guess in more similar shoes to where hannah and i stand back before you like started to see all the benefits of this investment that you've made in culture? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's just, it's certainly harder, right? The smaller the group in some ways, but to me, the culture is really just about remembering what's important, right? So what's your, what are you here for, right? What are you trying to accomplish? What's the mission? And then once you're clear on that, then you communicate that to people and then you just treat people well and you keep them aligned with the mission and over time that culture will just build it seems like a big part of that's also having a shared story so the initial people that had this vision like was it we all sat down at the table and we constructed this story together was there one person who once it was articulated everyone just latched onto it can you speak to that in terms of the vision that was painted for that initial small circle i think the vision initially grew grew naturally out of our past experience. So I think we as a leadership team all have worked in places where the company was successful and in places where we felt like they weren't as successful as they could have been. And what we found in every case was that we were sitting around talking about, well, what made the difference? And what made the difference was the culture. And then we were like, okay, well, what does that mean? And what does that even look like when you say, well, I didn't like that culture or that culture didn't work? And in this business, what we found was the culture that didn't work was because it wasn't focused on the customer and it wasn't focused on the people. So we've all had experience working in situations where we felt like it was maybe a more autocratic leadership style and we just didn't feel like that worked. So I I would say it really, the vision and then ultimately the culture kind of grew naturally out of our past experience. Is there any degree to which sitting in the CEO role now, and I'm sure there are frustrations and other things that come across your desk that maybe, not that there's an instinct to be autocratic, but like you can see the temptation there and you manage that. Can you talk about how you kind of balance those two? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think to be in the CEO role, I mean, first of all, I feel a sense of responsibility, a tremendous sense of responsibility, as I'm sure everyone who sits in this role does. And so everyone probably like me at least, has a tendency to think, okay, well, I need to control, right? It's my responsibility. I want to control because I think to be in this role, you got to be a little bit of a control freak at times, but it doesn't take long to figure out that you can't. You just can't control everything 
from one central point and one person doesn't know it all. And if you think you do, then you're probably in the wrong job. I mean, there's just no possible way that I know what to do all the time. I don't, and I shouldn't have to, because there's a whole team of people here that's way better at a lot of this than I am. Fascinating. This has been great, Teresa. I feel like I've leveled up my leadership skills just by talking with you for a little bit. Was there anything else you were hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? I don't think so. Notes from Colleen. I know. I'm looking before I get yelled out here for missing something <laughs> that was on the thing. Maria, did I miss anything? No, I'm good. I think uh, we got it. Awesome. Then I want to make sure that people can connect with you, at least in the digital world, and I want to provide them the coordinates with which to do so. So where can we point people who want to learn more? So our website as a company is www.intervala.com. So that would probably be the best place for them to go. Also, I'm on LinkedIn, so they can feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Awesome. We're going to link that in the show notes. Goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast is the place to find it. Or in the podcast app, we are currently listening to this conversation. But as we do at the end of each conversation, Teresa, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Let's say my challenge would be don't accept the status quo, don't accept mediocrity. It's just one of the things I've learned is that you can always be better personally and as your company can always be better. So I would just challenge people to dream big, hire the right team, get them behind a vision. And just go make it happen and don't settle for the status quo. And don't tell, don't let anybody tell you that you can't do what you want to do. Beautiful. Have you found that it's easier to resist the status quo as you've done it more? Or do you think it's always approximately the same challenge? That's a great question. I have probably been someone who's always kind of pushed against the status quo. It's just always been something that's been a pet peeve of mine. I hate mediocrity and I hate it when somebody says, oh, well, it's always been that way, so we're not going to change it. So I don't know if it's been easier or not, but it's just always been something that's been a pet peeve of mine. Where do you think you got that from? I don't know. I would have to say probably going back to my upbringing. I was raised by parents who neither one went to college and both made tremendous careers for themselves. And I can remember my mom telling me when I was young, don't let anybody tell you you can't do it if you really want to do it and you're willing to work hard and put your mind to it and just go out and do it. So that's probably where it came from. Awesome. Well, I'm fired up. Don't accept the status quo if you're out there listening. And Teresa, thank you so much for coming on Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for having me. Boom. Boom.